If you are hungering to know more about Jesus, or if you are a believer and you feel yourself drawn into a conversation with someone who expresses a desire to know Christ, realize that God actually seeks us. So in either situation, if you are here this morning and you don't know the Lord, but you have this insatiable desire to know Him, or you feel uh, the Spirit of the Lord drawing you, or if you sense the need to have a conversation with someone about the gospel, understand that God truly seeks us. C.S. Lewis once remarked, Amiable agnostics will talk cheerfully about man's search for God. C.S. Lewis goes on, They might as well have talked about the mouse's search for the cat. That's a profound statement. You ever seen a mouse searching for a cat? Well, you're never going to ever see man seeking after God unless God first seeks after him. Why? Because no man seeks after God. Romans chapter 3. The natural man cannot discern the things of God. So today we're looking into the second part of an understanding of the gospel going out to Gentiles. And remember, Peter has lodged in the house of a tanner named Simon. And then last week, first time back in Acts, we saw that the Lord comes to Cornelius in a vision and lets him know what is taking place, that he should send out some of his soldiers, some of his friends, to find Simon, who is lodging in a tanner's house, and bring him back. And so this is going to be a lengthy passage this morning. We began in verse 9. And some of you are going to be really breaking out in a sweat when I say this. But we're going to go all the way through verse 48. It is an integrative whole. And I dare not leave you hanging when, we're, when the scripture presents itself like this. But again, one commentator makes it clear, and I like this, that in order for Cornelius <coughs> to receive the gospel from Peter uh, and Cornelius be converted... God first had to convert Peter, not to salvation, but to an understanding of the fact that God is not a respecter of persons. There is no discrimination when it comes to the gospel. And so God is in the mode of arranging all the furniture on the deck to get Peter to understand uh, what he is about to do. So these actual events leading up to chapter 10 serve in preparation, of course, The section we're going to read now, beginning in verse 9. Instead of reading the whole text, I'm going to just read sections. And then I'm going to preach the narrative for you. Make some applications along the way for us to see clearly. If you're going to title this, you should call it the Gentile Pentecost. And it is Acts 10, 9 through 48. In 9 through 16, we see Peter's preparatory vision. Again, Peter's in the home of a tanner. Back in verse 43 of chapter 9. And then listen to verse 9. The next day as they were on their journey and approaching the city. Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. So Cornelius has sent out his delegates to find Peter. And in the meantime this is what Peter is doing. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it he fell into a trance. 
and saw the heavens opened, and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air, and there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, he's very emphatic here, for I have never eaten anything that is, that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up to, uh, at once to heaven. So it's noonday, it's noontime, he's on the housetop to pray, and I like Peter, don't you? He's a fisherman. That's the first thing Jesus ate, right? When he resurrected bodily, he ate fish. I like to catch fish. I like to eat fish, right? But nowadays you got to eat it grilled, right? Can't eat it fried. I'm a southerner, so I like it. But he's on the rooftop. He's a fisherman. And we experience this somewhat when we're in Guatemala or other mission trips. In Guatemala at our mission home, there is a rooftop. And you can go up on that rooftop and you can see active volcanoes from that site, and you just look at God's magnificent creation, and it, is, it moves the affections. Well, don't you think Peter uh, is missing the ocean, and he's missing the sea, and here he's on that coastal area, and he's up on the rooftop, and he's, he's uh, enjoying what God has created, but he also enters into a time of prayer. But he's a lot like me, and he gets hungry. I don't even know if we pray enough to get hungry. Right? But the second part of that is, don't you just love it, is he doesn't act too spiritual and just keep on praying. He just hollers down, hey, down there, I'm hungry. Prepare me something to eat. I don't know if it happened exactly like that, but it's very similar to that because they're in the mode of preparing it, and Peter doesn't consider himself so spiritual that he has to just pray on through the hunger. Evidently, he was hungry enough to say, Lord, I need to eat, and in the process, I'll keep praying. And then the Bible says that as they're continuing to make the meal, he falls into a, the literal rendering here is a trance, is where you get your English word ecstasy. So no doubt what's going on here is a supernatural working of the Lord to put Peter in this kind of understanding ecstasy so that he can give him this vision. What does he see? Well, here's what he sees. It's called an ark sheet. You ever heard that before? How many have ever heard it explained that way? Did you know in the Hebrew, this sheet would be referenced as a vessel? So this is extremely interesting. The sheet is in the form of a vessel filled with animals, and it is let down by its four corners in the shape of an ark. So it is an ark vessel. And there's a threefold description of what's in it filled with animals and the description is given there for us. We read them, uh, animals, birds of the air, reptiles. Did you know that in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint, this word description is used exactly like this in Genesis 6.20 to describe what? The explanation of the animals that went into the... Isn't the Word of God awesome? So here's this four-cornered sheet let down from heaven... And it's in an ark structure, vessel type, water-worthy picture. 
And it's absolutely filled with all kinds of animals. Now, I think the mixture of clean and unclean animals would have been a calculated disgust to any Jew. So think about what he's seeing there. And then the next two verses we might call, as one pastor calls it, grill it, I mean, kill it and grill it, Jonah. Now you say, where'd the Jonah come from? Well, just hold with me for a moment. Where is Peter? He's in Joppa. Where was Jonah? In Joppa, okay? So kill it and grill it, Jonah. I like to say this is a proof text for hunting. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. You hunters up, any, any hunters in here? Oh, come on now, guys. Y'all need to get with the program, right? Well, some people believe, again, Peter's, think about Peter's perspective here. He is a Jew from one end of the spectrum to the other, and he is hearing the Lord say this. He's looking at this sheet of things that have never touched his lips before, and from his perspective, it's time to argue with the Lord. Lord, by no means am I going to let this enter my mouth. I've never done this before. His response is emphatic. No, by no means, Lord. Uh, it's possible that this was a test of Peter's obedience. But there's another prophet in the Bible. His name was Ezekiel, and God tells him to warm his food up over animal dung. And in the words of Heather Land, Ezekiel says, ain't doing it. Right? He says that basically. I'm not going to do this. But God says, yes, you will. And Ezekiel, of course, doesn't retort anymore. He just obeys what God tells him to do. So Peter is much like that. Now again, this would be the equivalent in the New Testament to Jonah in Joppa in the Old. Jonah did not want to take the gospel to the Assyrians. Y'all remember that? He was kind of ticked off at the Lord for even giving this kind of crazy thing that he would go and share Jesus or share the gospel, be a light to the nations, to those who would kill Jewish people by skinning them alive. There's no way I'm going to take the gospel. Of course, you know, after a few nights in the belly of a fish, you know, you, you kind of change your attitude, don't you? And so the Lord says, yes, Jonah, you're going to go. And he sends him and Jonah obeys, although he's uh, kind of recalcitrant in that mode. But Peter's motivation is somewhat different. It's, 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 initially, it's just, this is, I eat things that are clean and this is unclean. There's no way that I can eat this. Again, this is against his religious scruples. You know what that means? It's against his religious conscience for him to take of it. Now, this is kind of ironic because where is he living at that point? Where is he staying? In the house of a tanner. By Jewish custom, what do we know about a tanner? They're ostracized. They're unclean. And if you lodge in the home of a tanner, you're also considered unclean. How ironic is that? But yet here, Peter is seeing this vision come down, and he, from his perspective, can't get over this. So God retorts to him, Peter, don't call what is declared clean, unclean. Now, did Jesus ever teach on this principle of clean versus unclean foods? Would Peter have ever heard this before? Well, sure, certainly. Uh, Mark chapter 7, the Pharisees spaz out. Why? Because the disciples are eating without washing their hands. And Jesus reminds them. In Isaiah's day, Isaiah, well he calls them hypocrites, the Pharisees, and says that you say with your lips that you honor the Lord, but with your ways you show contrary to that. 
And then the Lord begins to teach on this. Remember, the Pharisees washed their hands, not just their hands, but all the way up to their elbows. And Jesus discusses those ceremonial washings. But then, upon uh, their statement about why the disciples could eat with dirty hands, Jesus said, it's not what goes into a man that defiles him. It's not the food that he eats that defiles him. Because Jesus literally says, it goes into the stomach and it is eliminated. Do I need to go through any more of the process of that, right? And so, real defilement is defined by what comes out of a man. And then there's this parenthetical reference that's put there. Thus, he declared all foods. I'm glad he did that because I love to eat pig. I hope I don't offend anybody. And if you were Jewish, I wouldn't eat it in front of you. But the fact is, you know, it's, un- it's clean because God has declared it that way. And he goes on to list out what it is that defiles a man. Have you all read these before? Sexual immorality. Theft, murder, adultery, coveting, etc. So Peter would have been exposed to the teachings, yet Peter was a Jew. And he wasn't going to allow things that were unclean in his understanding to go through his lips. So do you see yourself in old Peter? What a contrast between Cornelius and Peter. Peter's called the rock upon which the Lord will build his church. And he vacillates and he has a command directly from the Lord. And Peter, not once, not twice, but three times, says, no, I'm not going to do it. But Cornelius hears the word from the Lord the very first time, a lost man, and he does exactly what God says for him to do. Don't you see yourself in Peter? You don't have to say it. I do see Peter in all of you, right? So, let's, uh, at the conclusion, the ark, the four-cornered sheet, looks like an ark, descends back into heaven, and then we have verse 17. Let's read this text. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed, don't you think he was? Yes, he was. As to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate. I find it interesting they stood at the gate, of course, knowing, of course, that there was a Jew inside and just being the kind of people hospitably they would have been, and called out to ask whether Simon, was, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit of the Lord said to him, uh, do y'all believe that there's something called godly convergence? That God is actually working in the background to fulfill His will? That He's Just think about the timing here of what's going on and how immediately the Spirit of God speaks to Peter's heart to prepare him. Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation. We'll look at that in a minute. For I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said to them, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to this house and to hear what you have to say. So Peter invited them in to be his guests. So he's inwardly, inwardly perplexed, but God is working. Peter's trying to figure out how all this works out. He's pondering what the vision means, what kind of application in his life. And the angel, or God, speaks to him and lets him know what's going on. God is arranging the pieces of the puzzle. Now, don't throw Peter too far up under the bus. Again, he's been raised in a Jewish home. He is an observant Jew. He was born of God and indwelt by the Spirit of God, but he was also a Jew. And this won't be the last time that the great apostle struggles with Gentiles. 
Why? Because in just a few chapters, Paul is going to have to stand before him and tell him that you are undermining the gospel of grace by your attitude of not eating with Gentiles. So it won't be the last time that he deals with this issue. But he's commanded by the Lord to do something totally different than anything that he had ever done before. It's taking Peter a little bit of time to connect the dots. Has it ever happened to you that way? To connect the dots of what the Lord is actually doing? What do we call this? Well, we call it a paradigm shift. What does that mean? Well, a paradigm is a way of thinking. It's a course of action of the way that you've always done things. But here, the way Peter's always done things and thought about things is turned on its head. You know, there are some theological truths that I learned along my way from a child being saved at nine and working my way through uh, my bachelor's degree in seminary and doctoral work, there's theological principles that you've really never thought of. And all of a sudden, when you began to think about it, paradigm shift, right? Wow, are you kidding me? And then you began to think differently and at a different pattern. Well, we also have customs and traditions that are woven into our souls. Baptist traditions and customs that are woven into our souls. And they're not biblically, biblical usually, But we hold on to them like it's sacred scripture. Don't we? And we have these customs. Somebody said amen. I think it was a lady too. That's awesome, right? (laughs) But here, these customs and traditions were turned on their head. And this is more important because this is a theological principle of the gospel reaching the nations. But don't we gravitate back to the old way of thinking? I mean, even when we know the right pattern, it's real easy for all of us because of prejudiceness and elitism to go back and start... Again, going back to the old way of thinking. So as you try to move thought forward in a new pattern of thinking, there's tension in our hearts. We have tension in our mind about what we ought to do. But Peter, let's give him credit. He's beginning to understand the implications of what God is doing. And he knows that everything is about to change. It's going to be revolutionary. So, again, is God directing the convergence Yes, absolutely. And then here's this word. Do this without hesitation. The NAS, which is the New American Standard, says do this without any misgivings. What it really means is do this without distinctions. Now that's the crux of really of the sermon uh, of the Gentile Pentecost is the fact that uh, a distinction has been made between Jew and everybody else. But now you can't make a distinction. So the crux of the entire thing is upon clean versus unclean, which is really talking about people, right? Jew versus Gentile. And that would be you unless you're a Jew here today, right? That would involve everybody in this room. So this word will be used four times in the book of Acts, and every time it refers to this particular encounter with Peter and Cornelius, don't make any distinction. There is to no longer be any distinction. And again, remember, this distinction would have been highly natural to Peter. They uh, could have not come into his home, ever. He could not have gone into their home either. Now again, there's irony here because he's already lodging in the home of a tanner. But here these guys are asking Peter to come along with them or to, to see Cornelius. And just think about this for a moment. The natural response would have been, hey, would you mind if we print out a Google map 
and I'll follow you guys, and in case I get lost, I'll have a map. But to accompany them and to be with them going back to Caesarea would have been something they would have never done. So this is, of course, direct application of Peter's vision, right? Don't call unclean what God has cleansed. So Peter comes down and asks for clarification. They give a brief description of the events, and Peter is starting to get it. They say, Peter, God demands that you give a message. And that message is why Cornelius needs to hear from you. And then this is awesome, isn't it? Peter begins to show hospitality. Is he getting it? He invites them. It wasn't his home, of course. But he still invites them to be his guest. Now pick up in verse 24. Y'all are doing so good. We're just moving right along, right? You're listening so well, we're moving right along. Verse 24. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. Uh, A little later in chapter 11, you'll find out that it was six of them that accompanied him. So there's ten in all. Three of the ones Cornelius sent out, Peter which makes four, and six more. So there's ten on this journey. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. Don't you love that? This message I'm going to hear, I know has got to be awesome, so I'm going to get everybody I know to come hear it. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted, lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. Translation, a Galilean hillbilly. Right? We remember that. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation, that i.e. another race. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Is Peter just straightforward and honest here? So, when I was sent for, I came without objection, and I asked them why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So here are ten men accompanying uh, on a journey. Uh, Again, Peter is sharp. He doesn't go by himself. I think he understands something's about to take place, and he needs witnesses. So he has witnesses with him, and whatever God had in store, he felt it necessary. Cornelius is calculated. It's 30 miles from Joppa to Caesarea. So if he's going by foot, buddy, they made some time. Faster than, quicker than normal. But it could have been horseback. But here is Cornelius and he's calculated in his understanding. He's anticipating them coming. And he's invited friends and family. I don't know how long they had to wait. Because, what if it was four or five hours? They were already in there waiting. Could that happen on Sunday morning worship? For anyone to be here an hour How about even 30 minutes prior to the sermon? Just anticipating what God is going to say through his word. But here is Peter, and he meets Cornelius for the first time. And what does Cornelius do? Again, he's a centurion. He knew what it was like to show reverence and respect. 
But he bows down. He falls down to the earth to lick the dust of the earth before Peter. And of course, like in every instance in the Bible, whether it's a messenger, uh, a prophet, or an angel, what do they say? I'm not the one that you bow down to, right? It's the Lord of glory. So quickly, Peter reminds Cornelius that I'm just a man. I'm a man, just like you are. And they began to speak to one another. Peter enters the house, and he realizes it's full of listeners. He's up front with them. And the literal rendering is, it's against my scruples and our customs to associate with people not of my race. That's what he says. That's, that's what I've, what's been driven in. That's my paradigm that I've always thought about. But now there's a paradigm shift. And he says, we, didn't, we don't rub shoulders with people that are foreigners. But God has given me a paradigm shift. What God has called clean, I should never call common or unclean. That's what happened in his life. Cornelius displays an incredible amount of humility, expressing eagerness to hear the word. Verse 33 is perhaps the finest Sunday morning verse ever written. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you've been commanded by the Lord. Do you know that your preacher, every single Sunday morning, preaches to you the word of God? The best that I know how to do it. Authorial intent, interpreting it with other scriptures to make as, as possible as I possibly can to make absolutely sure that it jihaws with the rest of the Bible. And it is exactly what God intends for you to hear. And so, how often do you come with this kind of enthusiasm? God, we are here together with a church family to hear what God has to say to us. What an awesome Sunday morning or any time you sit under the Word of God... When the word is given. And so Cornelius had expectation. Had an attitude of wanting to hear. He had heart preparation. Wanting to hear the word of God. We burn it at both ends so much on Saturday nights. That we come in here and sleep on Sunday morning. You know preparation for Sunday morning starts on Saturday night. And if you're up till midnight. One o'clock, two o'clock. Shame on you. Go to bed. Drink some Baptist bourbon. It's called NyQuil, right? <laughs> Drink some NyQuil. Knock yourself out and come to church so that your mind is sharp. And I've, I've looked at a lot of you out there and you're just like. And you just. And some of you husbands are sitting there and I see you go. And I know what happened. They'll watch it. Right? It's happened to Blake three times during the sermon, right? But the fact is heart preparation, folks. Think about that. Prepare for it. My kids make fun of me on Saturday night because I'm like, hey, I'm going to bed. I just disappear. Nadley comes in there. I'm just sleeping. It happened last night, right? Because I'm, I need to prepare not only to preach the Word, but to hear what God has to say to me. So it demands some preparation. Can we draw some conclusions from 24 to 33? I know this is in the middle of the sermon or toward the end, but what kind of display of love do we need to give toward our neighbors? What do I see in 24 through 33? Well, we can show no hesitation in befriending people unlike us. How are you doing on that one? We all need this attitude adjustment. Don't? When somebody's not like us, we gravitate toward people who are more like us, don't we? Well, we need to have no hesitation in befriending people who are unlike us. Second, we can show hospitality toward everyone, opening up our home and our lives even to those who don't know Christ. Number three, we can show humility before all people. 
Folks, regardless of skin color or annual income or living conditions, you're all made in the image of God. You don't have a monopoly over anybody in this world. You are made. Just because you're a white American doesn't give you elitism or favoritism. You are created in the image of God just like every other person in this world. So we ought to have that kind of attitude. Now, 34 through 43 uh, Peter is going to be thrown a big, fat softball right down the center of the plate. For you base softball players, you know what that means? I mean, you're just sitting, 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 sitting. And here's what Peter does. He doesn't strike out. He jacks a home run. I mean, it's soft serve right there for him to get. And what does Peter do? Well, he, ta- he tells the gospel, right? By the way, it's not enough in our country just to talk about race relations. As good as it was for Peter to understand this, he didn't just say, now let's be good brothers and sisters and believe everything we want to believe. No, folks, the key was he had to share Jesus with him. It's not enough just to say, we got to deal with race relations. You know what heals race relations? Jesus. Jesus heals race relations. And that's the central issue of it all. So what did he proclaim? Well, he says to them in the sermon that the Israel of God was sent. And he also says that God shows no partiality. The interesting thing about that word is it means God is not a face receiver. That's pretty awesome. He didn't look at your face and say, Whoo, because you've got that face, I'm going to receive you. That's not the way it works at all. I recognize you, therefore I'm going to show favoritism. In our context, this is speaking of Jew and Gentile relationships. It's not race that God looks at and favors. It is not race that makes a man close to God. You could have Abraham's blood coursing through your veins, but that doesn't make you a favorite of God. Actually, God welcomes from every nation people who fear Him. Y'all see it in the text? So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears Him and does what is right is acceptable in Him. See that pretty clear. God is not a face receiver. Now, he's not saying that every person from every nationality, as long as they're sincere, God welcomes them. That's not what that says. It's saying that when God is truly seeking someone and they want to know the truth, that God welcomes them. If they want to know him, he welcomes them. Again, it goes back to the seeking and the responding to the truth of God's word. God welcomes from every nation people who fear him. God's welcome is based not on sincerity or works. It is based upon God showing mercy to those who have humbled themselves and said, I need God. Again, I think you remember the conversations we had about Cornelius. Was it the fact that he did all these things that God showed favoritism? Absolutely not. It is not what's going on. It's the fact that he was being drawn by the Lord and desired to know the truth of the true God, and thus God sent the gospel. That's the way it works in the Scripture every single time. So this is what Peter comes to realize. It's about grace, not race. He looks with favor upon those who want to know him. Do you think this spoke to Cornelius' heart? Y'all do know that he went up to Jerusalem, right, to worship? Was he allowed into the temple? In the court of the Gentiles, yes, but never in as a true worshiper inside the gates. But now Peter is preaching and he says, God welcomes you through the gospel. That is an amazing statement. 
that we are welcomed. Anybody in this room, you come by the way of the cross, you trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you are welcome. Isn't that awesome? When you think you're ostracized and kept outside of the gates, and then all of a sudden Peter is preaching Jesus and the fear of God and coming to know the truth, and he says, you are welcome. Here's what you need to know about Jesus. And he preaches a sermon, right? He says, the eternal word was sent. Listen to the word. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea. Beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. That's not the end of the story. But God raised him the third day and made him to appear not to all people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes, isn't this glorious? In him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. What a text of scripture. The Israel of God was sent. The eternal word of God was sent to Israel and this was God's design. But was the revelation supposed to stop in Israel? No, it was supposed to be magnified to the nations, that God is the light of the nations, that you must come to Jesus. And what did Jesus bring? He brought reconciliation bought by His blood. Not only recognition, verti- re- reconciliation vertically between you and God, because you can't have peace with God until you're forgiven by God. And you can't be forgiven unless you have the righteousness of Jesus uh, given to you, Right? So he's saying, not only is it vertical reconciliation and peace, but it's also horizontal. It's peace with one another, no matter what your nationality is. This is the message that Jesus brought. Remember, he came into his own, and his own received him not. Don't you love the words? Peter says, he is Lord of all. And this goes back to chapter 2, verse 36. And he is going to assume that there's some controversial issues surrounding the ministry of Jesus Christ. Right? So what does he do? He starts plotting out the earthly ministry of Jesus. He talks about his baptism by the Spirit. He talks about good deeds. He talks about healings. He talks about Jesus overcoming the power of the enemy. He talks about the presence of God in him. Why? Because he was God. And then he begins to talk about the fact that he was placed on a tree and cursed for you. Don't just bump over this. When it says hanged on a tree, it is sacrificial language that goes back to Deuteronomy chapter 20. What does the Bible say? Cursed is every man that is hanged upon a tree. Are y'all getting this? You realize that Jesus Christ had no sin. But he bore your sin. And therefore, cursed is the man. And Paul will turn right around and definitively say, Yes, Jesus Christ died an ignominious death. But God vindicated him by the fact that he came forth from the grave. And Paul is going to talk about the fact that Jesus Christ became a curse for me and you. 
so that we might be saved. He bore our curse, bore our sin. He that knew no sin became sin for us, that the righteousness of God might be in us. And then he mentions the prophets. Those who preach the word, the scriptures, speaking of the fact that Jesus Christ fulfilled them all. Jesus Christ came to this earth. We preached that during Christmas. He lived on the face of the earth. He did all the miracles and all the teachings. He was God in the flesh. And then he took that perfect body to the tree of Calvary to pay a debt you could not pay. To die for your sins. This is what he's preaching to Cornelius. And of course, here is uh, the strong reminder that you can't be saved without the forgiveness of sin. And he puts his finger right on the nerve of a universal truth. Everybody in this room, whether you would admit it or not, you have an innate sense that God Almighty exists. You don't have an innate goodness, but you've got an innate sense that God Almighty exists. You can see it by what He created. And according to Romans 1, whether you ever come to know Jesus as Lord or not, you're still guilty. Why? Because you know full well deep down that God exists by just going out here and looking to what God created. That's what it says in Romans 1. But isn't it an awesome thing to move further than that and to understand that yes, God exists... And my condition before him is, I need to be forgiven. And you say, well, that forgiveness thing is a big, that's not a big deal to me. It's not until you lay your head on your pillow and go to bed at night. And then you wonder if you don't wake up, what's going to happen? There is a universal need for all men to be forgiven. You know why? Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That means you can't come to God because you are a sinner. But aren't you so thankful that God has arranged it in such a way that He saves sinners, right? Through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that forgiveness of sins. Uh, and here's the deal. Gentile Pentecost. You ready? We've got to wind her down. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. You know, what the, you know what happened? I'm not sure Peter was through preaching, but his sermon got interrupted. And you're like, wow, that, that needs to happen today. Well, I'd be shocked if it did. But the fact is, the Holy Spirit falls immediately as he is preaching. They believe the word, the message of the gospel. And the Holy Spirit fell on them and cut his message short. Right? That's the text. That's what's saying. And listen to this. And the believers from among the circumcised, I mean, you got believers who are witnessing this. Those six who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. What do we call this? Gentile Pentecost. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. This is an awesome text where there's verifying that what the Jews received in Acts chapter 2 is the same thing that's taking place in Acts chapter 10 in the home of Cornelius. When they believed the gospel, they were given the Holy Spirit of God as a gift by God. And then they followed in believers' baptism, which is a visible sign of gospel reality. They publicly confess. Uh, You remember the Ethiopian eunuch? Read the word, trusted Christ. What forbids me from going off this chariot and getting in this water? Very similar here. And then note this. I mean, I could preach on this for hours. But the fact is, 
They said, stay with us. You think Peter changed? They just didn't leave quickly and say, we've got to get out of these. You don't deal with the kosher laws like we do. Got any kosher food here? No. They stay in the home hospitably. And here's the deal. Their fellowship now with these Gentile believers was greater than family back in Jerusalem that were Jews who didn't know Christ. Isn't that awesome? That's the way God brings it together. Our church family is closer in many ways than relatives that you have that are flesh and blood that don't know Christ. We have a fellowship. We enjoy a kindred spirit. We enjoy a like precious faith like nothing else in this world. Now here's conclusion. Our attitude toward the world, those who do not know Christ, is supremely important. Our attitude about our community. In Christ, there is no basis for any kind of distinction. No kind of discrimination allowed, period, if you're in Christ. You remember Romans 1.16? I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to those who believe. To the Jew first, and also to the... Why does it say that? Because that's the way it happened, right? To the Jew first, and also to the Gentile. Prejudice or elitism on the lips of a believer, to me, is an obscenity before God. Whether it be racial, national, or cultural, or social. What a difference it makes when we look at others with the attitude of open-armedness. And optimism that grace can save anybody. That grace can change anybody's lives. And then we act lovingly, courteously, courageously, and aggressively to take the gospel to people in our community and around the world. God in His grace... Think about this. Reached down to save a vicious sinner, chief among all. And his name was... Yes. But he also goes out to a five-time adulterer who was shacked up, a Samaritan woman at a well, and he saves her soul. And then you have somebody who is devout. We may even call him a good Baptist, but he was lost. You can be devout and religious and on your way to hell unless your sins have been forgiven by Jesus Christ. And so we see that unfolding in the book of Acts. And regardless of what your pre-conversion experience or state is, if you're a Christian today, you should stand amazed at the grace of God to save you. And He can save anyone. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most. Sing it. I sacrifice them to His blood. That's the way we live if you've experienced grace, right? We don't boast in anything we've done. We boast in the grace and mercy and blood of Christ that He saves sinners. Great God, we thank You for Your Word. Lord, I know this was a lot of Scripture Uh, There's no way I could do it all justice in one sitting. But Lord, thank you so much for grace. God, let us learn the lesson that, Lord, if you show discrimination or distinction, we'd have never been saved. But God, thank you so much that you're not a face receiver, that your grace can save anybody anywhere in the world. And Lord, we would pray, Father, that you would draw sinners into yourself. Lord, save people in our community. 
Give us hearts that are open-armed. Give us uh, understanding of, of just what Peter had. Lord, we admit, and we're honest about attitudes. We're just prejudiced. We act elitist. But God, forgive us. God, forgive me. And God, would you put in our hearts the attitude that we see in the book of Acts, that anybody in this world is a candidate for grace. And you can save anybody, red and yellow, black or white, doesn't matter who it is. God, give us loving, courteous hearts to want to take the gospel. Lord, perhaps my opening statement struck a nerve in somebody's heart. Are you here hungering for God? Lord, I've given them the answer. That hunger is only going to be fulfilled through forgiveness of sins in the person and work of Jesus Christ. God, would you help that person come to you today and trust you as Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, I want to remind you of something coming up. I'm going to begin on February the 11th. And for five or six weeks on Sunday night, I'm going to be preaching on the family. I'm going to start with preliminary perspectives on marriage. If you're married, you need to be here. Y'all do realize that there's an onslaught of the enemy against the family. You need to be here every single time on those Sunday nights when I preach on marriage. I don't make any bones about that. You need to be here. Okay? Uh, newly married. Right? Uh, getting ready to get married. Right? You need to be here. 50 years married. You need to be here. Okay? That starts on February the 11th. 